You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week you'll hear another conversation that I had with Shan Geisinger. Um, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Shan about her adaptively famine perspective on anorexia nervosa, which is in a nutshell that when a person goes into energy deficit, so they eat less than their body needs on a daily basis, then the body, that signals to the body that they're in a, an environment where resources are scarce or a famine environment. And therefore the body feels that in order to survive, it has to migrate to places where there's abundant food. Hence we um, like to move a lot, usually those of us who suffer from anorexia nervosa. And also we don't like to eat very much and animals that are migrating don't tend to feed on the wing, so to speak. So hence feeling reward and feeling good about moving a lot and not eating very much. So that's the adaptively famine perspective. And I wanted to ask Sham about how that perspective explains the fear that we feel. And the two fears that I especially wanted to talk about in this podcast were, first of all, the fear of eating more food than is usually eaten. Most of us can get quite habitual and pretty good at eating the same thing once we are eating something, but eating more is difficult. I wanted to ask about that and also the fear of weight gain. So here's our conversation. You know, I think it's so interesting that we, you know, that people today pay attention to that number on the scale that they didn't in the 40s, and that they didn't in uh, the, um, you know, the anorexic saints were weighing themselves. Um, But they were paying attention to something else, something else was making them feel really good, the evidence that they had not been eating, Um, you know, maybe not having a bowel movement, or, you know, not, um, you know, just being able to say I'm eating nothing but the host. What I want to say, I guess, about the fear part is that these neuroscience Um, research, which has been trying to figure out what is going on, what's the dysfunction that's, that's causing people to have these, you know, uh, crazy thoughts that normally sane people have a fear of eating when they're hung, when they're starving. And what it's what study after study after study has shown is that when you present people, especially when they're hungry, uh, who have anorexia um, with a, f- a, a, a food stimulus. You ask them to, you know, imagine, you know, to either you make them, <laughs> they're in the position where they're having to drink chocolate milk, say, while they're in a, a scanning machine, or you have them imagine uh, eating these foods. What gets activated is the amygdala. And the amygdala is that um, part of the brain's part of the, limbic system, it's responsible for uh, primal fear, for dread, for uh, unreasoning, you know, we're not supposed to think about it when we have that, when that part gets activated, we're just supposed to respond. Um, Yesterday, I was, um, I'm in Berkeley right now, and I was um, running on the fire trail. 
which I've seen a snake there once. <laughs> a rattlesnake, I mean. I've seen lots of garter snakes, but I've seen a rattlesnake there once. But I had forgotten about that because it had been many years ago. And um, and I see a little garter snake go across my path yesterday. And after that, every stick that had a little bit of a sinuous response to it, I could just feel myself getting, you know, my heart beating stronger, my, you know, kind of taking a breath and, you know, looking and uh, feeling frightened for for an instant until I realized oh, it was a stick. But that part of us is supposed to take over everything else because those were fears. I mean, things that activate the amygdala are things that we were supposed to pay attention to. And I think, I think that it makes it really hard because you're supposed you're trying to get yourself not to pay attention to something that it's like you're, well, I think um, a lot of people have had a lot of metaphors about, <laughs> about um, the fear. It's like what being in the ocean and letting go of your life raft to swim to the rescue boat or, you know, they have, we have these kinds of metaphors because it really feels like it's just so terrifying to eat. I'm somebody who I'd say I have a ridiculously fear threshold for most things. So uh, you're not afraid of much. No, the things I've done on horses as an event rider as well, my mother wouldn't even come and watch me because it scared her to watch me jump these fences. And people often say, well, you're either brave or stupid. And I think I would be on the, on the edge of stupid. I think that fear is there to protect us. And sometimes I don't have enough of that in, in some circumstances, yeah. but try and get me to eat more food. That was yeah. completely irrational. And a fear that felt to me like a brick wall. Like, like it feels like not optional, um, which mm -hmm. I think for most of us is why when we go through recovery, we have to actually really develop um, skills that most people don't have to develop in terms of overcoming fear and this and overcoming this what feels like a not optional amygdala response to that's just not going to yeah. happen to actually controlling those responses in our brains that are not supposed to be controlled as you as you said mm -hmm. you know recovery for me was actually learning to, working out how to control that fear response so it's a really strong HPA axis deal response mm -hmm. to stimuli. But mm -hmm. why is that stimuli creating that reaction for a person with anorexia? You know, I think if you think about all those animals that had to stop eating in order to do other things, like sit on their nest, um, you've got to have a fear like that. If you think about the penguins who've lost 40% maybe of their body weight and are near near death from starvation uh, as they're incubating their egg uh, during that long Antarctic winter, if they didn't have something as strong as that, and we don't know what they have, but, um, uh, but it's got to be something like that. It's got to be just feel like it would be the worst thing in the world. It would be terrifying to eat your neighbor's chick, say, um, or your own. <laughs> And, um, you know, it has to be something really strong because remember that starvation was life and death. Um, and if, if um, you know, you had two strategies you could take. One was to just hardly move at all uh, except to maybe find a grub or two <laughs> that might be still left 
or to move. And so your body has gone down that. Uh, we're going to move. And it, so the fear has to be strong for, because the it was really important. And those people who weren't that afraid and who paused apparently didn't make it to the next con. <laughs> Right, right. And that's what something that really clicked for me, I think, when I was reading on uh, a little bit of, I guess, anthropology stuff more as to, and that combined with um, things on migration and migrating animals. And so, you know, if you imagine that there's a famine environment and you have to move to the place where there's more food. And this is, I think, the bit that that really get all place to where there's abundant food. And this is the bit that really clicks for me as to the fear of eating more. There's this big fear when I had anorexia and the, where I speak to my clients and, and many other people about it, of the fear is of eating just a little bit more than is needed to survive. And I feel it makes sense that that would be like, if you're migrating and you're competing against other migrating tribes in order to get to a place, if you stop too long, even if it's an hour too long, they might get to that place of abundant food before you. And that means you're dead. And I also think that that makes sense as to why many of us, after eating the meagre amount that we eat that just about feels right, we immediately want to get up and start moving again. Because... I had to actually make myself set a timer and make myself sit for 30 minutes, 60 minutes after eating because the desire to move after eating was so strong. Um, and so, you know, it makes sense to me that urgency to like, right, I've eaten, I've refueled, I've had just what I need, no more than what I need because that would take too long. I'm going to go again. That, I think that's really, really brilliant. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that about how it, uh, yeah, that that feeling of, okay, I had a little snack, now I got to get moving. Yeah. And the hard part is like once, once I was, whenever I made an increase in food, the hard part was the change to eat more was horribly difficult. But once I'd eaten more and nothing bad had happened, that was yes. my new normal. And I could eat that amount and I could eat that amount indefinitely, but eating more again. So it was always, the, the hard part was always just eating more. And as if, if it was anything more than what I, I thought was just what I needed in order to survive, that mm -hmm. was really difficult. And therefore eating as much as I needed in order not just to survive, but to create the energy surplus that I needed to come out of energy deficit, incredibly difficult. But, you know, mm -hmm. I could actually do day to day so the amount that I needed to keep my very mm -hmm. underweight frame going day yes. to day. I, I, I knew what that was and I could yep. do that. But it just felt innately wrong to eat more than that amount, um, which I, th I think makes sense if you think, well, if there's some urgency of moving to a different place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. that really helped me understand, oh, okay, so what I need to do Although it feels really wrong to stay sitting after I've eaten food, I've got to somehow work out how to make myself do that. And although it feels really wrong to eat more than what I know is my normal, I somehow have to work out how to make myself do that. Yes. And, and that's where the, those helpers come in, too, um, that this uh, person um, who has who's, um, boyfriend or husband is um is help well, trying to figure out how to help her that it's really tough because you don't get that fear and it just seems like obstinacy but if you can be patient and be 
um, supportive and distracting and uh, uh, cheering on. I talked about, didn't I, yeah, about how I thought you should think of yourself as a labor nurse and um, that you're, you're just going to be, you're not going to tell them they don't have to do it, but you are going to, going to say, good job. <laughs> that was so brave. I know you were afraid, and that was really brave. You were so strong. Do you know the book by Harriet um, Brown called Brave Girl Eating? Yes. Yeah, I love, I love that. She's so articulate. And, um, you know, to, to title it Brave Girl Eating, that, that the bravest, that you know, this most courageous thing you'll ever do is eating over that fear. Maybe, you know, it's strong. There's nothing like it. It's And it's so frustrating because I wish I could put it on my resume, on my CV, to say that yeah, you know, it's like, this is the that. bravest feat I've ever, it's the bravest thing I've ever done in my life. And and not just, you know, it's not just something brave that you get to do once. It's day in, day out. The, the amount of courage it takes to, you know, continue to do that. But I, you know, I don't get sort of, if I put well recovered from anorexia on my CV at the moment, I, I just get funny looks rather than... I'm, sort of what I feel is appropriate and it's the same you know with everybody who's been through this illness or going through it right now and eat doing being brave every single time they eat you know it is commendable but you know, just don't get that respect right now that you deserve which is a shame yeah yeah well so that's sort of the fear of eating more the fear of weight gain you know with the fear of eating more I, I felt that I was able to kind of figure that out in my head from the migration the fear of weight gain I'm still not sure I fully understand I'm not sure if I understand whether it really is a fear of weight gain or if it actually is that the weight gain signals some kind of failure or some kind of you know like in the same way say in if in the starving saints they were doing this before scales were in your house were a thing so maybe it's just that the the number on the scale is a marker of success or failure in some response but um as to why weight loss and continued weight loss and further weight loss in that sort of situation is a marker of its success um that's interesting yeah. to me i think it's a really um window into how the conscious mind makes tries to make sense of and not only tries uh automatically makes a story about things that come up. So what's coming up from the um, deeper parts of the brain, the non-conscious parts of the brain are uh, you, uh, you see the scale and you feel, you realize that's a marker of success or failure and you feel either joy or elation. And you think, you know, oh, well, that's because, yeah, how to say this? Let's see. I let me go back a little bit. Um, so we know you. In fact, I think told me you had the same experience of someone who never cared about their weight, never, never, yeah, never cared. I don't even know that I really ever weighed myself before. Right. <laughs> yeah, and then now all of a sudden, it feels like the end of the world if you've gained or lost, and I. I it, you know, if you've always been a, a dieter, then of course it just, you don't even question it. But if you've never been a dieter, you just have to marvel at what on earth is my brain doing? And what your brain is doing, I think you said it very well. It's 
there is some kind of elation from a marker of having been successful at this thing you're supposed to do. So you're you're marking the challenge though, like so it's that's the challenge and 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 getting that feeling of achievement, having achieved something that was incredibly challenging. Yeah, yeah, that it's hardwired for us to want to achieve. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, and for some reason, I think that it's safe to say that for most people with anorexia, if not all, low weight becomes an achievement. It feels uh-huh. like an achievement, a goal. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, the interesting thing is that for most people, I believe, certainly for many people, once you're recovered, you, you don't have that same feeling of, Oh no. Yeah. No, no. And and it's wonderful not to, it's wonderful to be able to get on the scale and see it go up and be like, that's great. And actually feel that's great that my weight went up rather than, you know, whereas when I was underweight, I get on the scale and I knew logically that I should be wanting to see the weight go up. And that's supposedly what I was trying to do. I was trying to gain weight, but there'd be that sneaky reward feeling if it had gone down, which was awful to have to admit to as well, because then people say, well, you're not motivated to recover if you feel good when your weight goes down. It's like, well, no, that's nothing to do. My brain rewards me when my weight goes down. That's not me consciously making that happen um it's just the reality and it gives me a hard time when the weight goes up and that's also a reality and both of those things are true even if one has all of the motivation in the world to recover both of those things remain true until weight restoration is made um you know which makes it very hard to deal with yeah no that's beautifully said yeah so i guess i'm still wondering though what would be the benefits of a low weight why why is why is low weight or even even energy deficit? Why is that? See, I don't think that there is a hardwired benefit of a low weight. I think that it's simply you're not supposed to be feeding. And so these become the measures that you're succeeding at that. That's a good way to put it. You're not supposed to be feeding because it really does feel like that. If I had a sort of a dollar for every time a client said to me, it feels wrong to eat. It would be so rich. <laughs> you know, that's that's the word that's used the most often. It's just wrong. It just feels wrong, like morally wrong, um, which is why I guess the starving saints, saints figured that they were starving for God because it felt so morally wrong to eat. Yeah, yeah, and felt so right to not. Yeah, yeah I mean, I even have, and I, I must admit, I did this a little bit myself, but not massively superstitious type, but... Um, you know, some of my clients have said that, say, when something bad happens to a family member, if they ate more, then they, they attribute, oh, that's because I ate more. I'm like... Isn't that interesting? No, it's, yeah. you know, they know really it's not, but there's a, something course. in them that says, see, that's because you ate more yesterday, something bad happened. That's how we can, that's how much the wrongness feels wrong, that we can actually yeah. attribute completely external, unrelated outside events to the fact that we did something morally bad or wrong. Um but if you think about it, that's, people do that a lot with non-food things that we think of morally wrong, like the karma thing. You believe in karma, I did a bad thing, and then something bad happens, and you think, oh, that's because I did this bad thing. But with, yeah. people with anorexia often do that with food, that, oh, you know, I ate more, and therefore a bad thing happened, and that serves me right for eating more. Um, yeah. And I think that the more OCD... Um, those of us with a stronger OCD component get that even more 
the you know yes. it feels wrong to go against what the rules are in the head and there are repercussions and then that creates fear in itself that feeling of if I do this and it's wrong and there are going to be negative repercussions which might not be I think that we might not have an idea of what those ne- negative repercussions are but maybe weight gain is the easiest and most logical thing for the brain to focus on because weight gain is spoken about so negatively in society as well and also um, that sort of all seems to fit into place. But sometimes I think we're too quick to label what the fear is due to, um, just because it makes sense. We're trying to put together a puzzle. What I feel fear, what am I scared of? And the brain always wants to try and create a reason. And I think sometimes we have meaning where there really isn't any, and it's just it's an illogical fear. Yeah. And you remember the quote in, in the article I sent you uh, by Gazaniga, um, that, that our, our mind is always um, adding stories to the feelings that pour out <laughs> from, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, I'll, uh, link, I'll link to that. Maybe I can link to that in the show notes so that people can read that. I think because mm-hmm. it is sometimes incredibly helpful to, if, if detecting the fear is, is the first step, I think, but then if the fear can be detected and then take a deep breath and say, it's illogical, it's just illogical fear. It doesn't mean anything. It can be then helpful to then take those steps forward um, and sometimes think that analyzing the fear and looking into it too much and thinking, well, why is that and what am I actually, is, can, can confuse things. It's just... First, yeah, 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 because then you come up with the wrong theories. You know, something that's a, a similar um, uh, weird artifact of the way the mind works that is helpful to people to get that this is just an artifact of the way the mind works it is some um, do you do you know that some people get afraid when they have a new baby that they're going to hurt it they're going to stab it I, yes i actually i listened to uh, i listened to bbc women's hour quite frequently and they had a whole sort of apparently it's quite common though but people don't like to admit to it because then they're worried that they'll get locked up right right or they just think it means something terrible about them and i hope on the bbc hour they explained that it's actually almost all of us have had the experience probably I know I have of standing at the top of a waterfall and thinking I could just drop on over. It's very common. I have that all the time, all the time. Yeah. I could just drop right over. And, and the thing is that you have to, apparently the way the brain works in order to be careful about something, you have to imagine it. And so when you have a new baby, you've got to be careful. I, I, I'm a little inattentive, so I would have dreams, cautionary dreams about paying attention or something terrible would happen. Um, but for these women who, you know, have the thought about a stabbing, it's simply that, that part of the brain that checks. It's a checking thing. So, okay, so what do I have to be careful about with this baby? Okay, don't leave it out in the cold. Don't, you know, for, put the baby basket on top of the car and and drive away or, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, and don't have a, a knife and stab it. I mean, it's before she, they have babies. They sometimes have that feeling about their husbands or their cat, you know, the people closest to them that they love the most. And it's, again, it's, um, it's doesn't mean none of these women ever stab their babies. They're no danger to their babies. It's because the mind has to think of it, imagine it before it can, it can, um, you know, uh, you can be careful not to do it, sort of. 
So, so that's a weird thing. You know, that's a weird thing that hopefully when people understand, oh, that doesn't mean anything wrong about you, that you have mixed feelings about this baby. It only means that this is some sort of glitch. Seems like it's a little dysfunctional, but, but it doesn't mean what you think it means if you were going to go and analyze it. I think that's the, that's the important part. And it's like it doesn't mean anything about you as a person. It's just something your brain threw up. It doesn't yeah. mean anything about you as a person. It doesn't mean that you're going you're you're going to commit infanticide or whatever you call it when you kill a child. Right. It doesn't mean anything about you. It's just something that your brain threw up. And um, I think that's half a lot of the problem that with so many therapies is that you spend so much time working out well what does this thought mean? And that's the last thing you really need to do. You just need to be like, well, that was just a thought. I can doesn't mean anything about me necessarily. I don't have to do what it says. <laughs> and sometimes right. it's a really good thing not to do what it says. Um, right. Yeah, it's right. Um, one thing that somebody said to me this week after having listened to the podcast that we did um, maybe two weeks ago now is that he he understood, and this is a part, this is a partner talking about his, his girlfriend who has had anorexia mm-hmm. and they've been together a couple of years, that he understood that anorexia is not evil, that it's an adaption mm-hmm. and there's nothing evil about it. And in fact, in the right environment and the right circumstances and the right age, it would have been survival. It would have been a survival mechanism to get to migrate a person to the abundant food. And I think that that sort of helped him. And it's an interesting... Um, conversation because so much of what we read about anorexia is labeling anorexia as this evil spirit or this evil voice or it's this demon inside of you and I know that that definitely helps some people to separate the illness from themselves and get angry at the illness and then go against what the illness says but I do think that personally I have come to a place of peace with it it's just this is a genetic thing that I have going on need to make sure I keep my weight up so I don't trigger it because if I do, it'll be really strong because it thinks it's saving my life when actually it's mm-hmm. killing me. Because that migration effect, and I don't know enough about how you know human anthropology or how humans used to migrate to know how long it would usually take to move to a place. But mm-hmm. I imagine it would be a couple of weeks or months, not years. But because mm-hmm. if we go to, to take ourselves into energy deficit in this day and age where there is abundant food, there's never a marker when that turns off because it's ne- you never arrive at the promised land where that would then be, oh, I eat a load of food now and it turns off. So that's the danger is that, you know, anorexia doesn't get turned off unless we make ourselves change our habits and eat. It's not like the environment changes for us. We have to make ourselves change within the same environment. So then it can go on for years and that's why it's so dangerous because of the effects of our nutrition. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Whereas it was never designed to go on for years. (laughs) Right. Right. And that's where the scale comes in too, is that, you know, people in the Pleistocene had a, a marker, which was, as you say, that they got, they'd made it to the, to the good lands, um, that, that the marker we have now is the scale <laughs> that we're doing a good job. And, and I think it must have been so much easier when your marker was, oh, okay, we've gotten here and it's hard to eat, but everybody's kind of supporting you and helping you. And, um, and telling you that you saved their lives, you know, instead of with someone with anorexia who's getting more and more isolated and more and more of their friends are dropping away because they're fed up with its irrationality, um, that they, they, it starts to seem like this is the only thing I do, 
that's any good and that what I have to do is lose more. You know, I want to say something else too, though, about, I think, I think that we have a problem with our sample size in, in that we, we look at, you know, you're, you're working with people who have, are really struggling and we tend to do studies on people who are really struggling. And we forget that there are lots of people, um, according to these large population studies, who get anorexia, get the symptoms, and they recover spontaneously, probably way more than those who get stuck. Uh, we don't really know how many, but my sense that, I, you know, I give talks on this quite a bit. And people are always coming up to me after and saying, oh, you know, I think I had that. But they'd never been diagnosed or seen uh, anybody. Uh, and it had remitted because somebody in their, and you know, who loved them said, hey, wait a minute, you're getting too thin or something like that. And they had, you know, started eating more and that was fine. Um, so I'm not saying you know, maybe the people for whom it gets kind of stuck are less lucky. Um, maybe they were more isolated when it came on, or um, I'm not sure what the difference would be, just as some chance things. But, but in any case, that the idea that at the time when it's going on, it feels like um, you're always going to have it, but you don't. Um, you know, you're always vulnerable. Um, but when you get free of it, you really do get free of it. It takes a while for eating to normalize. Oh, absolutely. I, and I think that actually, to some extent, having, you know, for those of us that that have had very severe, have, and for years and years, the work that we have to do to get free of it, so the resistance that we have to begin to have to any kind of restrictive diet Actually, I feel that I'm more free than most people are in the Western culture that we live in, in terms of that I really do eat whatever I want when I want it. And I'm not having thoughts about, oh, you know, that's gluten free or that, oh, that was too many burgers this week or because I had to work on completely shutting all of that down. And I think to an extent now I'm and freer than, than most people that have not had anorexia. Was it worth it? I don't know about that. But, um, you know, recovery really is worth it because once you do start to build those mental skills and become, if you put your blinkers on and just, I have to eat and I know that it's going to feel wrong and I have to eat and I have to gain weight and you put your blinkers on and do it, you become very good at shutting out mm -hmm. any thoughts that are not helpful. But because most people have some sort of food hang-up, um, and I'm not, you know, most people say, oh, most women, but I actually know it's not just most women. Most men as well have some sort of food hang up. Oh, I shouldn't eat this or I shouldn't eat that or I shouldn't do that. And um, I just, I do think that is just the culture that we live in. But I think that have people who recover from severe anorexia learn how to be very free around what they eat, um, hopefully with full remission at least. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> Well, I hope that you found that as interesting as I did. So we have the fear of um, eating more food because animals on the wing don't want to stop too long. They want to eat just what they need to survive and then get going again. And the fear of weight gain, 
really interesting, which does make sense to me that the number on the scale actually isn't important to the body, but moving and not feeding very much is when it thinks it's in a famine environment. So therefore, in our modern world, the value is translated to the number on the scale because that indicates that one didn't feed very much and one moved. Okay, so there's fear. We've identified and maybe even come up with some possible explanations as to why there's fear. But what are you going to do with that now? How do you overcome that fear? First of all, I found that understanding the fear did help me overcome it because when I could understand that the fear was inappropriate, it made me able to reason with myself as to why I didn't have to act on that fear. Even when it felt so strong, I was able to use that information to tell myself, this fear is inappropriate, you can eat more. Um, I think for me, the hardest part actually was recognizing the fear. In order to overcome one's fear and think logically about it, one has to recognize it in the first place. And I think I didn't recognize the fear because well, who on earth is scared of eating food? That's ridiculous, isn't it? So I guess I didn't just, I didn't stop and identify what I was feeling, those very intense feelings that I was feeling as actual fear, because I didn't really think that it would be possible to be scared of food. So although what I was feeling was fear, I don't think I translated it that simply in my brain. But once I was able to begin to do that, then I could recognize the fear and stop and then breathe. And when you breathe long, slow, deep breaths, that puts you into your parasympathetic nervous system. And that's the sympathetic nervous system in which you can use your prefrontal cortex and actually think rationally about things. I know that when I first, say, was presented with eating more food, I went into my sympathetic nervous system. And that's your fight or flight nervous system. And my breathing would get fast. My heart rate would go up. I'd start to feel hot and sweaty. And when you're in that fight or flight nervous system, you are not in a very good place to think rationally and logically. You just want to go. You just want to run or freeze or whatever the response is. So for me, stopping, recognizing the fear and then breathing was what would be able to put me in that place where I could say, okay, I can do this. It's just that same old anorexia fear. I know I need to eat more. And the third thing that I think really helped me was being brave and curious because the fear is intense. You have to be brave in order to step into that fear. But being in a curious mindset helped me um, sort of be more of the observer, maybe like a, as if I was a third person watching myself eat more food or watching myself step into that fear. The scientist, the eye, you know, from the, I was looking at myself from the curious mind of the, the observer, the scientist. And that would make me ask questions, sort of, well, what's the worst that I could happen if I ate more? What's the worst that could happen if this ha if I did this? As if I was experimenting. And also, yeah, as if I was telling somebody else to eat it. 
The curious attitude there really helped me be detached from that fear. Just to, well, I'll see what, see what happens. And guess what? Nothing bad happened. I'd eat more food. And really nothing bad happened. I'd gain more weight. And nothing bad happened. And every time I did that, I gave my brain data that eating food and gaining weight and watching the number go up on the scale was nothing for it to be afraid of. And therefore that fear diminished. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. If you have any questions, um, topics that you'd like me to talk about, then you can email me. My email address is info at You can also tweet at me. My Twitter handle is at love underscore fat underscore. Thanks again for Shan Geisinger for coming on and talking to me in this week's podcast. I will link to her in the show notes and also I will link to the adaptive Famine perspective that Shan wrote. Cheers and until next time, cheerio.